Welcome back to the Demystify Sci podcast. My name is Anastasia. Hi, I'm Michael Shiloh. And today we are talking to Steve Keen about fundamental errors in economics. The conversation is pretty detailed and struggles largely with the idea of money and debt. Where does money come from? How is money created? What is good debt? What is bad debt? How do you fix our current over-leveraged situation? And although it's a difficult conversation at times just because we're wrestling with such complex ideas, I think that it was a very, very productive conversation and a very useful one. So Dr. Keene's position comes down to the idea that banks are misconceived fundamentally in our modern society. And if we can work towards reimagining how banking is done, we might be able to avoid collapse. He is not optimistic about that, but he does believe that there is a new economic theory available which can guide us towards more functional systems of monetary policy, which really comes down to how well we're living uh, on the day-to-day. So really cool conversation. I really made some huge leaps in my own understanding of what money is and what government spending has to do with that. And turns out I was completely backwards in my thinking about this. So I learned a lot. I think you guys are going to learn a lot too. If you like what we do, come join us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash demystifysci. We would really love to be able to work on this project full-time. We have huge goals ranging from live shows to becoming a granting organization that supports independent research. And the only way that we can get there without being bonded to large interests that have their own goals and their own domains is by getting support from our audience, which is actually something else that we talk about during this conversation. And so your support means the world to us. The people who do support us are making our lives get closer and closer to the point where we can spend all of our focus on making these explorations even better. So thank you. Anybody who's interested, patreon.com slash demystifysci. We'd love to see you there. And Dr. Keen's on Patreon too, and that's how he's able to do this research. He's not married to some sort of captured institution that's going to drive his research into the ground. And so this is the new model, really. This is how the world is making progress. All of the good media is not inside of these broken corporations. And I think in the future, you're going to see a real rebalancing of private information chains versus public chains. And anyways, it's fascinating. We get into it. So enjoy the conversation and we'll see you next time. The scientific revolution starts now. What would you say is the goal of economics? Well, the goal of economics should be to understand the economy. But it, uh, the, what it is instead, and this is my reason for being such a critic of it, uh, it's a reason to defend capitalism on grounds which are completely spurious. That's what it's turned into. So you have a theory of uh, the economy, which, for example, ignores the actual data on the economy because the data contradicts the theory. And my favorite illustration of that is, you know, the idea of supply curves, demand and supply, mm-hmm. rising supply curve. The theoretical basis of a rising supply curve is what they call diminishing marginal productivity. 
And the idea is you have a, you have a fixed capital, both largely machines, and you're adding variable uh, inputs, largely labor. And you, as you add, add initially, you might get an increasing level of output per additional worker. Then you reach an optimum level where you've got the right, the, the, the best ratio of labor to capital. And then when you push it past that point, you have diminishing productivity from each additional worker. And then that diminishing marginal productivity is what causing rising marginal cost. Now, that's the theory. When economists have gone and asked surveys of, 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 uh, of firms about what their cost structure looks like, without fail, every last survey has found that 80, normally about 95% of firms report they have falling marginal cost. Okay, so hold on. Let's 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 orient ourselves. So basically, the idea yeah. is what you're saying is that if, as you add more workers, your productivity doesn't increase linearly anymore, you get to a point where you're adding workers and they cost the same amount, but the amount of productivity that you get out the other side is lower relative to the cost of the worker. This is that's that's the, theory, the theoretical. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and yeah. so what you're saying is that when you go to a company <clears throat> and you interview the company and you're like, okay, yeah. you know, worker uh, labor input, you know, number one gives you uh, s- so much output, and labor input ten thousand gives you the same output. There's not pretty much. There's not yeah. a different ratio. Okay, how do you? Yeah, is that. Yeah. Is that just because people own less of a stake in the operation and they're getting less no. returns as workers? Because if you have no. two people oh, no, in he's a saying partner, that he's saying that it's theoretically is predicted that way, but it's not actually. It doesn't play out that way. Yeah. So you're not a fan of this theory. No, no, no. It's literally when you yeah. go poll businesses, they are like, no, that's not what actually happens on the mm-hmm. ground as this we hire more and more workers. Of the standard model. And it's in conflict with reality. Gotcha. So what's yeah. happening? And- well, engineers design factories. That's the difference. And they design them to be most efficient at 100% utilisation. Because you live in a growing economy, you start at less than 100% utilisation. So as you as you increase your scale of operation, you will approach the ideal operation of the firm. You will not go past it. And if you have a sensible company that's growing, they will, uh, before you reach 100% capacity, they'll build an additional factory, which also starts at less than full capacity. So and, and also you don't use all your machines. If you have if you have a hundred machines and the ideal worker is one worker per machine, quite literally the theory is assuming you have that one worker trying to operate the whole hundred machines. Then you get to got you know, one worker per machine, then you get the ideal, and then you have hired more workers, you have two workers per machine. When the ideal is it's crazy, it's a silly, childish idea of mm. how you organize the factory. When you well, look do, at the do real people world, still cling to it? Yeah, Yes, I'll give you my favourite example, Alan Blinder, who was Deputy President of the American Economic Association, a Deputy Governor of one of the central banks, so absolute mainstream. He did the last survey into this research in the 1990s, a very, very large survey, uh, and the book was called Asking About Prices. He actually said in his uh, empirical chapter, the overwhelmingly bad news here, brackets for economic theory, is that the 89% of firms report constant or falling marginal costs. Now, he publishes a textbook. 2015 edition of that textbook does not quote his own research and argues that firms face rising marginal cost. Wait, hold on. So I didn't follow. So that it, what would it, yeah. I thought his original research said that they did face... No, falling. 89% have constant or falling marginal cost. Okay. That's what he's in. Okay. 
So that's it, what that's his primary not, research says. That's like if you were to look well, up the citation. That's what he did in 1998, yeah. Okay. And then his textbook, which he's been publishing throughout, continues to claim marginal cost rises. Have you ever talked to him about it? Huh? Have you ever talked to him about it? Well, I don't think he'd answer my phone call if I tried. Uh, but if you if you look at it, the basic thing is the theory, as he said, if the, if we take the empirical data seriously, the theory can't stand, can't hold together. And rather than throwing the theory out, and this is a classic thing for anybody who believes in a paradigm, he ignored the results. And so is, his own textbook doesn't teach what he found empirically. Interesting. Is it just a sin of pride, or is there a reason that he's clinging on to this idea? Is there something I, it I gives? You find the same thing in any science initially when you have a, a, a paradigm-threatening discovery. So if you look at uh, the, the classic there is Max Planck on quantum mechanics, of course, and he you know, developed a, you know, a mathematical uh, solution to the many-body problem, but it, it, was, it required the idea of energy coming in, in, in quanta. And he said he simply failed to convert any of his colleagues who were Maxwellian in their approach to physics and energy. None of them. He couldn't convince any of them to change their minds, even though he could he could fit the data and they couldn't. And he said he realised that if, effectively that's where the old quotes, history, science advanced to one funeral at a time, uh, comes from. That's a paraphrase of what Max Planck had to say. I um, agree with that, but I also think that it's worth pointing out that it might also progress one dinner party at a time yeah like Planck had success I don't in get his lifetime right? dinner party so <laughs> uh Planck had success <clears throat> in his life right uh, did he oh incredible success but the reason he had the success was his colleagues died hmm. and new people came along who accepted his theory that's something I actually explored in my last book the, the new economics the manifesto why does economics not progress one funeral at a time and the explanation is that uh, the the anomalies in economics are transitory. So the Great Depression was an anomaly. Mm. Okay, okay. Um, the uh, inflation of the seventies was an anomaly. The uh, two thousand and seven crisis was an anomaly. But you wait two or three years, and there's something else to worry about now. Mm. So you don't you can't reproduce the crisis that, that was the deep that contradicted the paradigm. And then it's also a very seductive vision of the world. So it's easier to find people who fall for the idea of capitalism as a self-equilibrating system, and on it goes. You can't get rid of them. That's so... I've never really thought about why economics is so resistant to being a, a solid science. And I think you've mm. captured it just now when you say that it's because... It progresses in such a way where the conditions in the present are never quite as they were in the past. And so yep. I see people now, you know, you can go back to the fall of the Roman Empire and start talking about the causes and things that caused it to collapse and then try mm -hmm. to put that onto the present day. But it's not the Roman Empire today. There perhaps yeah. are some things that were at play then which will be at play now, but just because it happened before we doesn't mean the same motivating factors are creating our present moment, even though it might look the same. Yeah, and that's right. So, it's something very different, yeah. I guess I wonder... This is I might just interject. This is fundamentally a crisis in evolutionary sciences as well because there's a feedback loop that builds up between the environments and the organisms. Yeah. So 
the niche is not a constant concept. It's not a static concept. The niche mm. is constantly responding to the actions of the organism as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so this is something that there's, there's this non-linearity to Darwinian evolution that's making real waves in biology at the same time. So I, I find it yeah. fascinating that, that, of course, economics would be parallel as well. Yeah, it feels but very biological. It, it doesn't actually engage in the debate. So, you know, you can't even get evolution. You won't discuss evolution with a neoclassical economist. Well, I think that maybe the answer is more cross-disciplinary exploration. Because, sure, the I, I find that the people that are on, at the vanguard are the people that are collecting around them thinkers from many different disciplines and finding ways to put together theories that make sense. <clears throat> because if all of your, you know, I, I'm actually reading this book about the Fed and I cannot, I, I know nothing about the, the author's name, but she's talking about the culture at the Fed where she shows up to work and everybody's a PhD theorist and she's mm. the only person who's ever worked on Wall Street. She doesn't have a PhD, but she comes in and she's like, hey, there's a mismatch between reality mm. and theory and no one will listen to her because she doesn't have a PhD in economics. Yep. And That's so, like Dean Natale. Did, did she write a book called Fed Up? Oh yeah, I think I know. I, think, I, think I, I know the author. I don't know the author by name, but I've have seen her work on Twitter. So yeah. And so I just I think that this is the when that's what happens, you have to just find the people who will help you develop the theories, because you that's how schools of thought are founded, right? Hmm. Mm. Yeah. That's so. Uh, that's uh, Daniel Di Martino Booth. You're talking about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a very insular profession and um, and it won't accept inputs from outsiders and that includes physicists and mathematicians unless they support the theory so you know interdisciplinary would be what would help but uh, they have a, a proclivity to invade other disciplines and don't like when other invisible disciplines try to invade them mm. so um, you know the, I, I don't see any chance for economics to reform itself I think this needs to be abolished <laughs> what is the replacement Mm. Start from biology. Start from mm. biology, mathematics, and physics. That's where we begin from. That's what I tend to do in my own work. Um, and then system dynamics. That's what we should be doing. So it's stuck in equilibrium. They think everything happens in equilibrium because that's what they're modeled in. And equilibrium used to be a, a crutch in the 19th century when they knew they didn't have the mathematics to do dynamics properly. Then in the 20th century, equilibrium became like a desired state. And if you talk with a neoclassical economist, every fifth word is equilibrium. Um, you know, if you had a if a, if you had a you know an alien land on this planet was asked to describe capitalism, the last word they'd use is equilibrium. Mm. It's always changing. Okay, I mean, but I believe life mind... itself can be defined in terms of being far from equilibrium. Prigogine, yeah, did exactly. a, famously did exactly. a lot of work proving that yeah. out mathematically. You've got to be far from equilibrium. You're using it, you're dissipating energy. That's what life does. So, yeah, it's a completely inappropriate framework, but it's become so dominant you can't shift them. I think people have a desire to imagine that life is a very stable entity, that it can be bolstered. And this economic fixation on equilibrium is, of course, trying to build ramparts for that. It's kind yeah. of like being the court jester for a potentially violent king. You have to tell the king a story that he's going to like because the alternative is that the king gets rid of you. 
And mm. the king in this metaphor is the state and the jester is the economist. There's only so much that you can do to tell a state that you're going to have to be comfortable with existing outside of equilibrium because that is an existential threat to the state, which has to be a stable structure. And if you can't have a stable structure of the state, what am I paying you for? <laughs> yeah, there's a certain amount of that. I, I think that's, that's, that's fair. Um, but they tend to believe this stuff anyway. It's not like it's not because they're being you know paid to or it's in their personal interest to uh, to support the uh, the status quo. They actually believe in this vision of uh, capitalism, and they think if they make the world more like their textbook, the world will be a better place. So they're actually more like religious zealots than anything else. Hmm. I've had yeah. a, a, quite a few personal run-ins like that. They've been quite fascinating because people they think because I'm an economist, they're going to support them. And so they tell me what they think, and it's quite hilarious. Well, it seems like this plays out over and over again, that all states, whether it's an institution, a state of mind, whatever, the states can become calcified to the point that they can no longer do their job. And if the institution of economics is not able to do its job, then eventually those tyrannies dissolve into chaos. And that chaos is really discomforting to people because they need to come up with a new model all of a sudden for how things work. Mm. And so I think people are just emotionally resistant at any level of this, this society to the chaos that results from impugning an idea that has been at the center of the order up to this point. Yeah, and that's, that, that makes it extremely hard to shift economic growth. Of course, it's much easier, but much easier, it's still very difficult to shift sciences like physics and chemistry and so on. So, you know... Absence of a disconfirming experiment, uh, inability to reproduce the crises that the disciplines have been through, the, the ideological appeal of capitalism of, of, of this is a is, is making us believe it's a perfect system, and you therefore you're trying to design the perfect system. You're not trying to analyze and understand the real world, and real world data that contradicts it. You don't want to read it. So you know, it's a miasma. Yeah, there's an. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I, just, I was just thinking about how there's an interesting overlap here in that, on one sense, you're saying economics should be understanding how economies work. But what's playing out is it's more of an engineering project with, like, can we tinker at this aspect or this aspect and nudge it towards something? And those technologies come with their own pro set of problems that we can't quite understand until they've already been disasters. And so. Yeah, I'm very interested in what economics 2.0 would look like. Well, I'm trying to build it, but um, I, you know, and there are plenty of other um, uh, non-orthodox economists around as well. So I'm not doing it on my own, but it's we're doing it with a, on the smell of an oily rag, and <laughs> uh, and that's that's partly the problem. With we're you know independent researchers, huge workloads, trying to do what we can, trying to cooperate when we can, but we're outnumbered. And certainly outfinanced by the neoclassicals, and that makes it, you know, very very hard shift. What is at the heart of the new paradigms that you see popping up? What are the, what are the new directions? Does money oh. still figure into economics 2.0? Because it's like I think we measure. No, you, you, you're putting it the wrong way around. It doesn't figure in economics 1.0. Okay. Mm. Money is not part of neoclassical economics, which is insane. Can you elaborate? Okay. I have I don't I don't yeah. know what that means. Tell me. They model the economy as if it's a barter system. 
they don't have banks or debt or money in their fundamental models. Is that? Oh man, I was monetary. This whole monetary universe is a relatively new invention to some extent, I guess. Like individual states would issue or tyrants would issue coin or something, but it seems like this whole idea of debt, global debt selling, buying, selling of debt is is relatively modern, right? Well, there's also yeah, it's only five thousand years old. Oh, really? Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm the moron here. By, by, by a friend of mine, now unfortunately deceased due to COVID, David Graeber, but a book called Debt the First 5,000 Years. That's and right. And in fact, human language began out of keeping records of debt. So, but there's debt and then there's credit and banks. And I remember being shocked the other day because I've been trying to get Richard Werner to come on the podcast. And so I've been... Eat- Which is a bit strange, by the way. So, is okay, he- yeah. He is, is a bit, he? yeah, but a conspiracy theorist. He's well, actually very good on money, but he's weird on other stuff. That, but the thing that I wanted to talk to him was about money because he wrote a paper where I think that he was the first to posit that banks create credit when they make loans, I think is what it was. He did an empirical test of it at a bank in Germany, yeah. Quite a nice little paper. But it was it was shockingly recent. Like, this is something that's part yeah. of my understanding of banks now, but I didn't realize that it was, I think he wrote it in the late 90s no it's actually well if you think of the paper with the experiment that was like about 2016 okay so like but the, really? he, he, wrote, he wrote princes of the end back in the 1990s so the the, the book he wrote on the it was actually in the 1990s yeah Hold on. i'm gonna pull up the paper do you remember the title of it oh richard's paper hang on a sec let's take a look and see if i can find it in my bibliography but this idea that people had about money 5,000 years ago, I mean, they were, tr- they were keeping debt in terms of bales of wheat and things like this, right? It was still closer to this barter identity. Um, mm-hmm. You should really read David's book. Uh, I, I, uh, started re- I started reading it. Um, and I think we own it, uh, actually, yeah. Oh, do yeah. we? I have an audiobook of it that a friend of mine gave okay. to me mm, in like 2015. Yeah. And so it's like it's I've moved it from computer to computer to computer, but yeah. I've never finished the book. This is um I'll send you uh, I put in the chat. This is Richard's recent um whereabouts I was was chat. Uh recent test, empirical test of whether banks can create money or not. Yeah, you so guys t- got access you got access to um um University libraries? Uh, no. Yes. Well, oh, you don't? Okay. <laughs> but behind the scenes. No, well, no I, I have access. Oh, you do? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay. You do. I totally <laughs> yeah, so there's Richard's, it's Richard's paper. And is it called? Go back to, is, it the one, is it the 2014 one from the International Review of Financial Analysis? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay, it. so it's called "Can Banks Individually Create Money Out of Nothing: The Theories and yep. the Empirical Evidence." The fact yep. that this is in 2014 speaks to your point about neoclassical economics not having a theory for banks and money because mm-hmm. you would have expected that to have been worked out much earlier than mm-hmm. 2014. Absolutely. And they still resist us. They gave a Nobel Prize to, to um, Bernanke, and Bernanke thinks banks don't create money. So let's talk about the creation of money. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Especially if it's not a new idea. The, or how has the idea evolved over time, I guess, is the question. Because it sounds like you're arguing that, that banks do create money. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. I mean, but if that's they seemed, do. Yeah. yeah. But if the mm. classical position is that they don't, 
What has changed? Yeah, what is the classic? Oh, but the classical position doesn't have anything to say about money? They claim that banks are what they call intermediaries. They, you'll see if they describe, you'll see if you've read a neoclassical textbook, you'll see them calling banks financial intermediaries. An intermediary is somebody who introduces you to somebody else. Well, like my, I call it the Ashley Madison theory of banking. If you know the Ashley Madison website. Mm-mm. Okay, it used to be popular. It's a, it was a way for married people to have sex with other married people they weren't married to. <laughs> so you would, uh, you'd put your name up on Ashley Madison and they then hook you up with somebody else who wanted to have sex without their partner, and therefore you got you know you got screwed, but you didn't get screwed by Ashley Madison. They were just an intermediary. So that's what I, I <laughs> that's why I call it the Ashley <laughs> theory of banking. Okay. Sorry, that okay. took me a second. Yeah, that but it, it applies. So the the who were the banks and intermediary for? Who was the other married couple between savers and borrowers? So savers mm. put money in bank accounts. Borrowers don't have money or enough money in the bank account. The saver lends to the borrower, and the bank charges a fee for the uh, to the lender. That's their model of what banks do. And mm. so the idea is that there is a fixed supply of money that never changes. Not that it doesn't change, but it, it, they have a diff- they have a different mechanisms for how it changes, which are also wrong. Um, so one of their mechanisms is what they call the money multiplier, and that was uh, that explains uh, the ineffective policy that that. Uh, Obama applied during the global financial crisis to rescue the economy. That was strictly following money multiplier theory. And that what does says, that theory say? Well, it says if you go to a bank as, a, as, a, as you get some cash from the government, so the government creates cash, that's one way to create money. You get $100, so you do deposit $100 at the bank. The bank hangs on to $10 and lends out 90 and then the people who get the 90 then go and deposit that at another bank, which hangs on to a Eight, nine, it lends at 81 and so on. And ultimately, out of that $100, you create $1,000 by a round robin process. And that, when you, when you check that out against the rules of accounting, it doesn't work. The only way it could work is if all loans are in cash. <clears throat> now, when's the last time you got a bank loan which is in cash? Yeah. So, but is that a relatively uh, modern concept? I mean, did people, did banks are relatively, modern invention or are they not do they go do banks, banks go back actually. five thousand years they go back about 500 years i see i see mm. but so, in terms of uh, the system we're used to today you usually get about 200 years as your timeline okay so let me see if i follow this so the idea is that um let's say that this the this is this is the is there a first saver like this, this seems like it's an iterative process. Yes, it is. Yeah, their model is iterative. Yeah. So who who are the actors in the very first, the initial state of the system? Somebody who gets a dole check from a, a government, fundamentally. So you, okay, you know, you get a you get a welfare payment. You go deposit the welfare payment in the bank. Okay, so the government is the saver, and no, the, the government the government. It, it, it's very messy because they really they, they they don't want to know about banking. Banking, if you do a three year degree in economics, will take up about two weeks of your lectures. Okay, That's maybe wild. three. So they they're trying to avoid it, and they have models which mean here's the here's the way to th- avoid thinking about money. Okay, so but yeah. you said that it's it's a uh, um, the the banks are the intermediary between the saver and the borrower, and so for yeah. this model, I'm asking about the initial condition. We have a bank, yeah. we have a saver, and a borrower, and the example that you used is somebody who gets a government dole check. So in that yeah. sense, who is the saver? Who is the borrower? 
Well, the, the, the saver then puts the money in the bank. The, the, the person who gets the doll check is the, is the saver. Um, but they, 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 they do have two separate models, I better clarify. They have one called loanable funds, and that just takes the money for granted and doesn't say where it comes from. And the other called the money multiplier, which assumes the money starts off as government money creation, where the government puts money in somebody's bank account, and then that bank account, uh, part of it is held by the bank and another part is lent out, and that iterative process is how they think the private sector creates money. So there's an initial condition assumption here where they're basically like, yeah. there is money, that's our axiomatic starting point, we don't really care about where the money came from that much. That's mm. There's different starting conditions of where it comes from, but the, the model is for everything that happens post-money creation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you have a saver. Saver has a hundred bucks um, and puts it into the bank, and mm -hmm. the bank splits it up to a bar to a new borrower. So there's somebody who like I see it kind of as like a if the lowest energy confirmation is the money is created, it goes to the it goes to the saver, and then it goes to the borrower. You're kind of traveling up the slope of money creation. Mm -hmm. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's the way they, but what they think is when you deposit 100 bucks at a bank, then the bank can lend out 90 of that, no problem. Now, the reality is, no, they can't lend it out because they're holding 100 on trust for you. So if they could do what the bank, what the model implies, then you'd go to the bank and find you put in 100, you've got 10. What happened to the other 90? Now, that doesn't take place. You put 100, you've got 100 in the bank. Uh, and then if you see them saying they want to lend uh, from from the money that gets deposited in the bank itself, they lend the actual cash out. Uh, the only way that can happen is that they do make loans in cash because they try you know, the loan these days. If you go to a bank and say, I want to buy you know, a place in Santa Barbara, they'll say, that's a great idea. Here's a million dollars to go and buy the house in Santa Barbara. And you also owe us a million dollars. So they put the money in your deposit account. Now, when you do the accounting, you cannot put the reserves in the deposit account of a, a, a borrower. You break the laws of accounting. So their model of how banks lend actually breaches the laws of accounting. Because what they've done is they've put that balance into your account, but they haven't taken any of the balance out of their reserves. Because the reserves yeah, well, are, is the money that's mm -hmm. actually put in at the point of the, the, the ATM or the teller or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I can actually, this might be a point, to, not that we want to do it as a as a part of the show, but I can actually show you that in my software. But I designed my software to explain these issues and it applies the rules of accounting. And you show that if you have, like a depositor could put money in a bank account. So what happens is the deposits go up and the reserves go up. And then if you try to show lending from reserves, which is what they think happens, you have a minus for the reserves, which right. is an asset. You can only balance that by a minus on the deposit accounts. So you can't lend. If you want to lend from reserves, it's got to be a minus on the uh, reserves and a plus on the loans. But if that's the case, how does the borrower get the money? And the right. only way the borrower can get the money is the borrower gets given cash. So if loans are in cash, the money multiplier works. But, you know, all I have to do is says, when's the last time you got a loan in cash from the bank? And the answer is never. So, so yeah. But, okay, so the, the thing that they're doing though is they're making an assumption that most people aren't going to come and all at once get their cash out of the bank 
And so they keep enough on hand for what they assume will be a regular set of transactions, and then they loan the rest. And so we do live in a society where if everyone at once came to get their money out of the bank, the bank wouldn't have that money. That is the case, right? Yeah, but that, the reason that is the case is because banks are not warehouses. See, the mistake we, we make in terms of thinking about banks, and this comes out of the conventional theory, is that a bank is a warehouse. You put your money in there, they lend it out to somebody else, just a warehouse. Bank is actually a factory. It creates money. And this is what Richard Werner's work was on as well. It creates money by expanding its assets and liabilities simultaneously. So if you go to a, if a bank has, say, um, let's say you've got a bank with a, a hundred million dollars in equity and a billion dollars worth of loans okay that's a typical situation and 900 million in deposits uh it will expand its assets to go from a billion to 1.1 billion by lending out 100 million dollars in loans so its liabilities go up to a billion and it's it's got 100 million in equity liability 1.1 billion assets 1.1 billion so they're actually money creators they're not money warehouse because they're a money creator you're right, they hang on to money in case the households panic, but that bears no relation to the amount of money they're producing. So um, we, we made the mistake of thinking the, the, the money they hang on to in case there is a run is actually used to create money, and no, it's not. And we treat them as a warehouse, and no, they're not a warehouse, they're a factory. So there's a fiction going on that is generating wealth, is what you're saying, but it's not real wealth, it's just... No, it's generating spending power. I mean, you know, you know, lending. It's not a fiction. This is this is the again. You see, well, if you you're in the if people. you're in the red, right? If you're if it's a negative reserve, if you're actually weighing it against the actual money, isn't that a fiction that you're able to lend that out still? Yeah, I guess the, this a, is. Hold on, this is the question that I want to ask okay. about that. If it's a fiction or not, because the way that I see it is that you have all of your depositors' money warehoused let's say and then you're also making these loans that's basically double counting that amount of money that you have in your warehouse so to speak right where let's say you have a billion dollars in deposits <coughs> and you make a billion dollars in loans what you've done is you've created two billion dollars in assets Be yeah and so, but, but I think when you didn't have the ability to make those loans technically in the first place, I think that what they're trying, what they're doing, is they're saying that we can make the loan off of the thing that the person is it has deposited to us because it's not real. Like the money that we give you isn't cash; it's this kind it's a of promise. It's a promise, and everybody accepts the promise. And in reality, we're double counting the money that we have in the bank because we're good for the money that we've given out. But we're not paying attention to the fact that we have to owe that money to two different sides of the coin. One coin is the depositor. The other is the the person that you're lend the borrower and everybody that the borrower has financial dealings with. And so as long as everything circulates and both the people that you are lending to and the people who are depositing don't both want the money at the same time, the system can kind of chug along. Um, this is why I invented Minsky. <laughs> because when you try to do this stuff yourself, you get all you get your knickers in a twist, to use an Australian expression. So I think I'm going to have to show you what happens in banking using Minsky. Okay, can you see that? Okay. Yes. That's good. Yeah. Bigger uh, one, is one, one bigger. One bigger was nicer. Yeah. Okay. So you have reserves and loans as the main assets that banks have, and then you have deposits, 
which of course where we put our money and that's a liability of the banking system and then you have the bank equity so i'll just type that that's your basic view there okay now you might say you start with say let's say in the initial conditions that you were saying earlier say 100 in reserves 700 in loans and say deposits are 650 and the bank has 150. that's your sort of starting point now if you have a depositor then what's going to happen is there's going to be a deposit which turns up here and that increases the reserves and what they think is but this is wrong they think okay there's going to be a minus out of here and you put the money in the deposit account and minsky says no you don't you've made a mistake that's supposed to sum to zero okay so the only way it can work is if you actually put the go straight to the loan then it works but the thing is how does the depositor get the money so the only way that can work and i'll just make this uh i'll minimize this window now so that's what i've done there is when you go and take a look at it from the point of view of the uh the borrower so by the way i have one quick question 150 to the banks is that just the bank's own what is that where does that money well, come from well, well the, a that... bank a bank has a bank has to have positive equity if you want to form a bank then what you have to do is to uh you go through a legal process of course but the legal process involves gathering financial assets so you start with equity um but you don't necessarily have any liabilities so how is that different raise, from assets the, the oh sorry how does equity, that equity equity is the gap between your assets and your liabilities if you if you raise a billion dollars to start a bank then you have assets of a billion dollars equity of a billion dollars and liabilities of zero okay so when you make your first loan you then go you have your first liability and your assets increase and the gap between your assets and your liabilities sort of remains constant. So the equity is the gap between your assets and liability, and that must be positive for a bank. Got a it. bank that doesn't have that is, is negative, uh, is, is actually uh, insolvent. So in this case, sorry, you? can you go back to the other window? So in that, in the first case, you have... Okay. Yep, the first case. Yeah. Um, so in this case, the assets total to 800, right? And the yeah. liabilities are six fifty plus, yeah. So the gap is one fifty. Looking at the bank itself, I started with the uh, eight hundred total value. Mm -hmm. So a hundred in reserves and seven hundred in loans. That's the assets. Deposits six hundred and fifty, and your equity is one hundred and fifty. Got it. it uh, okay. So hold. So the top chart and the bottom chart. They're two. They're two different calculations of the same the system. The top is the bank. Okay, and the bottom is the uh, borrow the public. So I'm just going to type a label in here so you can see that. I'm waiting for my. I've got a very slow computer at the moment. I had to my other computer crashed, so I'm waiting for it to be um, repaired. So that's that's the banks up there. So in the bottom case, somebody has a bank account. They have six hundred fifty dollars deposited in that bank account, but they're given some sort of credit loan of seven hundred dollars. But in reality, the bank doesn't 
on this transaction's basis doesn't have the real money to actually give them that loan. They have to pull no, the, the money money, from money, money, money is a promise to pay. You did actually, one of you said this earlier, money is a promise, and that's what it is. It's a promise to pay of a third party. Um, so, uh, like, in this particular case, if anyone wanted to try their deposit out of 650, then they'd be forced to liquidate their loans. That's that's the danger we all have in mind. So, you know, we, we worried about whether the bank can actually, if we go to withdraw the money for the bank, can the bank actually manage that? That's the worry we all have. Right. Um, but the reality is, banks are money creators. They don't. They're not. They're not just warehouses. So they, like a warehouse, can only give you what it's got. Okay, but a factory can give you what it can make. And we tr we treat them as 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 warehouses. They're in fact factories. That's where a large part of our errors come from in thinking about banks' debt and money. Is it okay that they're factories? Is that a well, problem? Yeah, I'm okay. With, I'm okay with reality. <laughs> this is reality. Banks. Banks are money creators. They always have been. It's but they're not autonomous entities, right? We've designed them, and and they are, in some sense, a technology that we've created, right? Can they be perfected? Is this the? Is it good that they operate this way? No, it's got all sorts of dangers. It's good in some senses, bad in others. And you could redesign them. You could design them so they had to lend out of an account they had at the central bank or there could be some reservoir that they were limited to lending to, or you could have some controls on the multiples they do. And we have none of that because we think they're the masters of the universe. They get away with blue murder at the moment. Uh, I and partly why they do is, yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm still, like, stuck that I'm looking at these charts and I don't fully understand them. Do mm. you? Can I you, do, finally. Okay, yeah. can, you, can you summarize just to make sure we understand? Uh, sure. Well, in the top case, it seems like, we're comparing the assets to the liabilities of this hypothetical bank, which is in the positive. It has $150 at the end of the day in mm -hmm. its, whatever you want to say, its worth, its value, something like that. It's, yeah. It, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, But in the bottom case, when you think about how that bank's making its money, it's actually, you have the borrower here, and the borrower has only $650 invested in this bank in real money, but they're taking out $700 in loans. So this is whittling away at the bank's true value. However, it doesn't appear that way necessarily in the ledger because those, I don't want to call them fictitious monies, but those monies which aren't accounted for are still being used to draw income for the bank at the end of the day like that real negative 50 isn't being considered in the equity of the bank right 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 i think that's it is that is that it um <laughs> <laughs> for amateurs yeah <laughs> yeah uh, but, but so are most economists they're worse than you guys okay Econ <laughs> economists have got crazy i take that as a compliment you guys are, you guys have a chance to learn what's going on so bank, and what I've done, I've put what banks actually do on the third line up the top. Actual bank lending is if you go to ask for a loan from a bank, they say, that's a great idea. Here's, we're going to put, you know, a million dollars in your bank account. That's credit. And we're going to show you, oh, it's a million dollars. That's 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 the loans. So double entry bookkeeping lets them do that. That's the, and, and you're right, we could actually set up controls to say, no, you can't do that. You've got to lend from a particular account, blah, blah, blah. We could put controls on it, but we don't. Now, partly that elasticity of the money supply is one of the potential sources of innovation and in capitalism. This is mm. a point which uh, Schumpeter makes very well. 
though he, I think he exaggerates how good banks are, but largely he defines an entrepreneur as somebody with a good idea and no money. And he sees banks as being entities that create money for the entrepreneur. So the credit actually creates additional money and demand in the economy. Now, whether they do that or not for good purposes, they tend to mainly finance asset bubbles and so on. But what they do is they simply ride up either side of their ledger. They increase their liabilities, which is where the money comes from, and they increase their assets, which is where the loan comes from. And they've got to do both at the same time to obey the laws of double-entry bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. Now, economists learn none of this, okay? Economists have no idea of any of this. So if you look at like the people who won the Nobel Prize with Bernanke last year, year, I think one of them says we will define a bank as the term, the the duration of a, of a loan contract, and in their model loans lasted one year. So they have no idea of this and all their theories, uh, and, and particularly thinking it could lend from reserves. They think that's feasible. They do not know that it's not feasible. So... If you say that double entry bookkeeping is at least partially responsible for the ability to continuously put money into the economy for innovation, for building things, for developing companies, for infrastructure, because these things absolutely need money. And so if the bank can make the loan and allow the project to move forward, everybody's better off because... You have roads, you have bridges, you have things that no entity could actually pay for in cash. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay, so what's the, I mean, presumably we need infrastructure. So what's the, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative would be the government providing the money for that. Um, because what you find with banks is uh, they end up just financing bubbles, asset bubbles. And the person you should have on to talk about this is Richard Vague, not Richard Verner, but Richard Vague. And he's actually he's based in Philadelphia, and he's uh, a quite a successful banker. Um, he's worth I'm sure he's worth more than a billion. He won't tell me what he's worth, but he's uh, very wealthy. And he became a critic of bank lending. Um, long set of stories as to why, but he said uh, from his own experience, banks lend into fads. So he was in the reason he became a successful banker was he was managing the consumer wing of a Texan bank a, a, a bank. And all the banks were lending to the oil industry in 1979-80 because the oil price had risen from $10 a barrel to 40 So the industrial wings of all those banks had overextended themselves, but they were all doing it. And, if you know, you would be criticised if you didn't lend to an oil rig at the time. And the price then collapsed from $40 to 10 again, and almost all those up ventures went bankrupt. So he then bought out his consumer wing and turned it into a successful bank and then a successful credit card company. Uh, but his point was banks just follow fads. Um, so, you know, if you, you have a, a danger that rather than providing money to invest and so on, they end up providing money for Ponzi schemes. But if and they're inventing the money that they're lending, what does it matter that everything crashes? Like, what does it matter if you've in- lent money to a company that collapses if the money isn't, if you just made the money out of thin air in the first place? Well, they can go bankrupt too. This is what the financial crisis was about. What they have, they have, they have. If they overextend themselves, then the whole financial system can collapse. But if it's fake why money, why? Well, because, because people lose you're, their you're, faith. You're in shopping it. with the fake money. You're shopping with the fake money. It's not fake money. It's we recognise what's in bank accounts as money, and there are 
two two entities can create money. The government creates it by running a deficit. So if the government spends more than take back in taxes, it creates money that way. And private banks create money by expanding their assets and liabilities simultaneously. But the so, point the point here is that what you're saying is that when they create assets and liabilities simultaneously, there's not a cash um there's not a, there's not a cash exchange that's associated with it. And so right. if that if that money is distinct from what they're actually warehousing in the sense that it is purely digital, let's say. Yeah, okay. If it's purely debt based. It's purely debt based, but it's also purely digital because no one's carrying around sacks of money, sure, right? Sure. So it's an abstraction. Mm -hmm. You you have a warehouse that has X amount of dollars, which are the dollars that people are using to shop and to do things with. And then you also have oh, I think that what it is is that the money that's in the deposit accounts of the people that work for the borrower also just have digital mm. money. Everybody's digital these days. I mean, it, it's it's not it's it's a not a quality. It's, it's a quantitative change rather than qualitative. We used to use checks for this sort of thing as well. Okay, so uh, and settlement took you know more than a day, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that it's all electronic now, nobody carries cash. Virtually nobody carries cash. So the link between cash and, and lend loans never really was there. And it, the re the reason that reserve requirements existed was in case there was a run. So you look at the the rules for a reserve account, people say, oh, you're supposed to hang on to 10%. Well, that was abolished three or four years ago by the Federal Reserve. But when you look at what it actually was, it was 10% of household deposits. There was no requirement for corporate loans. So all they were saying, we want to make sure that if households panic, any bank that's registered by the Federal Reserve, which is all banks, any bank can handle 10% of their deposits turning up in one day. And then if they have the panic goes on, we can get them the cash overnight. So it was just a way of stopping the household sector from panicking. It had nothing to do about controlling their lending. But economic theory took it as controlling their lending. Mm. I want to go back to what you said about potentially the government taking care of this process. Mm. How is that administered? How is it funded? Is this from taxes alone? How do you? What's this system of government? What what do you? What would well, the, this look the, like? The, the government the government creates money by running a deficit, and this again people get this entirely wrong. So like with Stephanie Kelton, who's a good friend of mine, uh, has been if you read a book called The Deficit Myth, you may have seen that, and she's trying to communicate like just what I'm saying how banks create money is different to what the theory thinks. The way the government creates money is also different to what the theory thinks. So the government creates money by spending more than it gets back in taxes. Okay. And when it does that, it increases the uh, deposit accounts because if you spend more on people than you tax on people, then the deposit accounts will increase. And on the ledger, on the asset side of the ledger, the reserves go up. Okay. So the way it's actually done is when a, when a government spends on the public, it sends money with the you know, earmark, put this money in, you know, in, 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 in Julie's account and Peter's account and so on with the actual account numbers. So that's transferred to reserve accounts, and the banks honour that by, for everything they get in reserve, they put the same thing in deposits. So if the taxing, if the spending exceeds the taxation, the deposits rise and the reserves rise. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the thing. Now, people think the government borrows. Well, it doesn't borrow, it sells bonds, which is very different because the banks 
used not to make any money out of reserve. They weren't paid for the amount of money they had on reserve. They are now after the financial crisis, but they weren't beforehand. Mm. So effectively, reserves were a barren asset, and banks wanted to minimise the amount they held. So the government would then say, we're going to sell bonds equivalent to the deficit. But we, they ran a deficit of, a, say, $100 billion. They then said, we're going to sell $100 billion worth of bonds. Now, because of the deficit, the, the government had created $100 billion worth of reserves. So what they were saying to the banks is, would you like to swap a non-income earning, non-tradable asset for an income earning, tradable asset? And the banks say, yes, please, and make the swap. Mm. So there's never any problem about buying bonds. Well, the whole thing about the debt ceiling you're going through right now is, is, is a joke. Uh, it doesn't matter at all. So the government has a basically limitless capacity to do that. It's, whether it's a good idea or not is another story, but it has no physical limits on it doing that. And so we have, a, we have theories of, of bank behaviour and, and government money creation, which are taught by the mainstream that are wrong. And so a new economics has to get that right. Mm. What would it look like? Would people be taking out loans from the government exclusively if there were was no bank? Oh, no, that, 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 that's not what I'm uh, see, thinking about there. But but yeah, that's if you had just a, like a government money system, the government. I was get a drink by the way. My, my voice is getting a bit sore. Hang on a sec. Sure, sure. Actually, I have two sides. Okay. When the government, um, if the government uh, runs a deficit dollar for dollar that becomes a surplus for the private sector so the government goes into negative equity when it creates money and that negative equity dollar for dollar creates positive equity for the private sector the basic logic being that when you're looking at financial assets a financial asset is a claim on somebody else so if you add up all the claims on somebody else you get zero okay right so if the government uh runs a deficit so it has spends more than it gets back it's creating claims on itself by doing that that's how it creates money and right. it backs that effectively by owning the country so the non-financial asset of the you know nominal value of america is what backs the capacity of the american government to create money like that now the government does it if it goes into negative equity then on balance the rest of the economy is an identical positive equity in that situation, if you have positive equity, you don't need to borrow as much because you've got actually spare cash. Mm. So if you look back in the 50s and 60s when the government was running a substantial deficit, people weren't borrowing all that much. Two reasons. One, they'd been through the Great Depression and the Second World War. They were very wary about being in debt. But they didn't need to because the government was creating net uh, financial assets for them by running a deficit. So when you have a substantial deficit, there's less need to borrow in the first place. And what dangers are associated with running a substantial deficit? Because it seems like people are panicking about this all the time. Yeah, they're, they're panicking for reasons which Henry, I just wrote a blog post about Henry Ford and and um, Thomas Edison was trying to say, stop panicking. This is normal behavior for a government. Mm -hmm. uh, but they do panic about runaway inflation. Now, the only times they had runaway inflation, a hyperinflation event, has been in the case of things like the Weimar Republic or, the, or Zimbabwe, Weimar Republic, where the French tried to destroy the the uh, German economy, and the and the Germans continue paying reparations. That was, by the way, ten years before Hitler. People think it, think Weimar inflation led to Hitler. No, it was actually austerity that led to Hitler. Uh, a serious period of austerity in the early nineteen thirties. 
Well, Hitler was very much a product of the decisions that were made earlier to some extent, or the, the activities. Oh, he was, he was, yeah. yeah. But, uh, but you know, what, what got into power was was austerity. I mean, the government running up this deficit by interject by injecting money into the system, the government inherently lead, like inflates the money supply, right? This seems like yeah, a, but the, but you have a if you have a growing economy. You're going to have to have a, if you're going to have a growing money supply as well, okay. right? And it, you know, one thing I came across when I was getting ready to talk to you was the idea that deflation could also be dangerous and and mm. lead to different catastrophes. How does that work? Well, the person who first realized that was Irving Fisher back in the 1930s in a paper called The Debt Deflation Theory of Great Depressions and it happened to him personally. Mm. Um, so if you have borrowed a large amount of money and you're heavily in debt and prices are falling, then as a business, what you'll do is you'll cut your own prices and try to attack people inside your own doors so you manage to pay your debts while your competitors don't. The trouble is your competitors do the same thing. So the price level falls more than the debt level falls, and in fact, your actual effective level of debt rises. Now, empirically, that's what happened between 1929 and 1933. When you look at the level of private debt in America, it was falling from 1930 to 1933, but the debt ratio was rising. And the reason was the GDP was falling faster than the debt was falling because GDP was falling, say, 10%, and prices were falling by 10%. They had a 20% plus fall in nominal GDP, as people paid their debt down by 10%. So the debt ratio rose between 1930 and 1933, even though the level of debt fell. So that's the real danger. And and there's no way out of that unless you have another an alternative source of money creation. Because if you, if you have to continue, or you have bankruptcy on a grand scale, bankruptcy writes the debt off, but it also destroys the money. So you have this collapsing process coming out of the inflation. interesting because normally we think about inflation as, as being the painful piece of the puzzle right we see the prices go up in the store for basic commodities mm. and we experience that as painful as opposed to mm. the more the more meta crisis of the strain on the financial structures themselves mm. Mm. and that's the main danger and that's my 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 first blog was called debtdeflation.com for that reason so but the idea is that you would always have a source of money, and it seems like a really hard balance to strike because if you have too much money, you do have hyperinflation, right? Yeah. Well, hyperinflation tends to be destructive resources and people trying to paper over the destruction. That's, you know, like the, in Zimbabwe, it was, you know, kicking all the white farmers off the farms and expecting their workers to be able to take their places when they didn't have the training or the resources. And you had a collapse in uh, economic output of Zimbabwe and then they just continued pumping out money and pensions and and so on. So th that sort of experience, about three countries have experienced it. Um, you know, Germany, obviously, after the First World War, Argentina uh, to a large degree, and then also Zimbabwe. Never a country like America or Britain, and never a country that hadn't been through some sort of large-scale destruction. So, it's it's something which uh, the the Weimar Republic really scarred our minds, you know, for uh, globally for a long, long time. But it wasn't necessarily the um, um, you know the, the widespread phenomenon we're always afraid of. So people think oh, running a deficit will cause um, 
you know, we're going to end up in Zimbabwe. If you look at the average deficit for the American economy between 1900 and 2014, it's 2.5% 2 of GDP every year on average. Okay. Take out the wars, it's 2.3% of GDP every year. So it's a normal situation for a government to run a deficit, and it tends to be related to the rate of growth of the economy. And so are you suggesting that hyperinflation isn't a risk after something like, let's say we go to universal basic income and the government mm. starts to just make that money out of nothing? Well, government, government mm. I mean, the lesson from Zimbabwe and from the Weimar Republic is that chaotic events can happen that lead very quickly to your government becoming ineffective and corrupted in certain ways that it can make really bad decisions. Like if you have a collapse of expertise. Yes. Mm. Okay. But what I'm saying is that that's a given. But many people are worried that the government creating more money is what causes hyperinflation as well. And are you suggesting that that's not the case? Not the case. Not uh, America's had 120 years of running a deficit. With a few exceptions, and the two exceptions, the main outstanding exceptions, are the 1920s and the uh, late 1990s. And after both of them, you had a financial crisis. Because if you look at what was actually going on, the government was worried, sick about its own level of debt, and ignoring private debt. So during the Great Depression, during the 1920s, Coolidge paid the level of government debt down from 30% of GDP to about 15, and thought what a fabulous job he'd done, and that's why the economy boomed. At the same time, the private sector went from about 50% of GDP to 150%. That's why the boom actually occurred. And to some extent, you can see them being forced into it, not, not completely, but um, you borrow money because there's, the government's creating less, so you need to get it from somewhere else. Oh, a so lot of people... Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, go ahead. A lot of obsession about government debt ignores the important one, which is private debt. Hmm. You have, to, you have to include them both. And so what you're saying is that as the government decreases its debt, the people are increasing their debt. That can happen for a simple reason, and that is that the government cases debt down, it's actually taking money out of your bank account. Okay, It's taxing more than it's spending, therefore it's reducing the amount of money in existence. Now, if you're trying to pay your bills and, you know, grow your economy, grow your company, and so on, you are likely to think, oh, I've got, I haven't got enough money. I better borrow some from the bank. And that'll often end up being, you get caught up in a speculative bubble. So in the 1920s, as the college was reducing the money supply by running a 1% of GDP surplus every year, the private sector was borrowing 5% of GDP every year, and a lot of that was in marginal loans. And marginal loans went from about 1% of GDP to 10% across the Great Depression, across the Roaring Twenties. And that meant that a 10% fall in the value of the stock market could wipe everybody out, which it did. So by obsessing about government debt, we ignore private debt. And that is the, when you look at the empirical data, when you look at when crises have occurred, it's always been a private debt crisis, not government debt. So I was going to say a lot of people are under the impression that the immediate recession that we're experiencing and the, well, just the financial struggles right now are a direct result 
of these huge government payouts that occurred in the last few decades. Um, and it's actually the, the opposite. It's the opposite. Yeah, if break that down for done, me. Yeah. If the government hadn't done those payouts, we'd all be bankrupt now. Because when you, because of lockdowns, because of people not wanting to go to restaurants or catch planes and so on, a huge number of people had no cash flow. If you had no cash flow and you've got financial commitments, you'll go bankrupt. And it would have cascaded through the whole financial system. So the government hadn't spent that money, we would have had a financial crisis. And but what about did the spend it. Hmm? Yeah, I'm sorry. Because it did spend it, we had the shortest recession in the history of America. And how does the present financial crisis relate to this? Where do you trace well, that back to? You don't really have a financial crisis. You have a uh, you have rising inflation, and inflation uh, has many. Well, the more stock market of... tanked, right? How? What's it down? I, I don't. I don't bother following the stock market anymore. What's, what's uh, it fell about thirty percent? I mean, it crashed out pretty hard at the beginning of like last year. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, like, real, you know, nothing, nothing yeah. like the 30s but it's it did yeah. take a pretty it fell about 30 percent fell about 30 percent which is fairly substantial um but the basic logic there is that you had rising interest rates and you had uh people who borrowed money to buy shares they're forced to sell their margin debt and when they sell the margin debt the shares go down um and the same thing with you had a simultaneously falling share market and falling bond values now, that was the really weird thing about last year so when you put rates up necessarily, bond prices fall. But people normally think, well, that means, uh, you know, uh, safe assets are more expensive, so risky assets will rise. But risky assets also fell because they're also highly geared. geared uh, people were you... liquidating, liquidating shareholders, holdings to pay debt, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but, you, you know, margin debt really does drive the stock market and margin debt went into reverse starting in October of last year. Well, can you break down margin debt for me? Well, margin debt is when you go to a stockbroker and say you want to borrow $10,000 worth of shares, and they say, oh, why don't you buy $20,000 worth of shares? Take out a margin loan with me, mm. and if the share market goes up by 10%, you make a 20% gain. Now, back nice. in the 1920s, it was the other, it was 10% deposit. So you could walk into a shop share broker with $1,000, and they'd say, oh, we'll buy $10,000 worth of shares for you. Mm. And therefore, the share market goes up by 10%, you double your money. Isn't that great? I see the but same the negative, process we were talking about before, basically. Yeah. The negative is if you um, if the shares go down by 10%, you get wiped out. And in a margin loan, it's unlimited liability. So if you have, and you're required to keep the account at the base level. So if you if you had a, back in my Irving Fisher's day, if you took out $10,000 worth of shares, uh, or $10,000 to buy shares, and took out a margin loan of $90,000, you'd have $100,000 worth of shares. And then if the share market goes up by 10%, you double your money. But if the market goes down by 10%, you've gone from $100,000 worth to $90,000 worth. So the broker is entitled to what they call a margin call. That means they ring you up and say, you've got to top up your account back to 100000 Now, if you answer, well, I haven't got 10000 in cash, they say, what have you got you can sell straight away? Your Rolls Royce, your wife, et cetera, wow. et cetera. Okay, so you see those stickers from the 1920s, people selling a Rolls Royce. Or whatever else to that's why they're mentioning their margin call because they simply had to liquidate or they lost everything else mm. so that's that's margin loans which are incredibly dangerous we did after the great depression we reduced the maximum margin loan from from 90 percent like you know 10 percent mm. deposit to 
fifty percent, but they oh, still allow them. That is fast. And they're now the lar- they're now the larger they have been since the Great Depression. Oh, they are they are enlarging again. They hit four percent of GDP, which is the most they've been since the Great Depression when they hit ten percent of GDP. Oh, that's fascinating. So mm. do you like how do you personally, if you don't mess with the stock market, how do you keep savings? I don't. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I own my house outright. I, I use my. We had a pension scheme called superannuation in Australia, and I, I basically use that to do my savings. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm a bit too much of a child of the '60s. I haven't, uh, haven't played the financially responsible adult. Mm. Oh, that's so but fascinating. I haven't, gambled, I haven't speculated. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that people save in order to get to a point where they no longer have to be producers. Yeah, fundamentally, it's what people do. And so, are you planning on just working until the day you die? Well, I've got plenty to fight in neoclassical economics, so the answer pretty much to that is yes. (laughs) And, you know, I think that's an interesting point, right? Because there's two different types of people in the world, those who work to live and those who live to work. Mm. And the people who work to live are going to be the ones that are excited about retirement because then they get to just tap out. But there's always going to be a group of people that are interested in just continuing for forever. But if you just keep cash as instead of instead of savings, then aren't you losing money at a time of inflation aggressively? Yeah, I mean, I, I, if if I was in here for personal financial reasons, I'd be doing a very different life to what I'm leading. So I've been campaigning against economic theory for fifty years. And as it happens, that's ended up with me having a moderately comfortable lifestyle because I'm supported on uh, Patreon and Substack. And uh, my views are in, you know, in, in demand in various ways, and that keeps me ticking over. And that's really what I want to focus on. I'm not after making a fortune or having a huge retirement uh, just to stop working. And as an intellectual, because I'm interested in what I'm doing, I'll continue doing it to the day I die. Yeah, I think I'm the key is being an intellectual. Right. Yeah. The key is being able to make your money intellectually, I suppose, in that sense. Mm. Because I feel like I don't know what the proportion of the population is, but I feel like most people are probably not doing intellectual labor that can work until they're ninety years old and croak. I think that there's yeah. also how many of them are doing labor that people really value. Because if you can find an audience with your with your intellectual labor that's different than working on something that maybe never hits or never lands or you never figure out quite how to present to people. Well, yeah, it's hard. It's not an easy thing to be, you know, to succeed in any intellectual space. There's always a few people who succeed and a, a lot of people who are scrambling really hard. Yeah. Who's, who's yeah. your audience, would you say? Oh, a large part of it is, like a, a substantial part of it is uh, young students who are critical of economic theory. So I have a substantial number of supporters because they can't pay me all that much. Then you have engineers, a lot of engineers who support me because they understand what I'm doing from an engineering point of view. Some people in financial services um, and a lot of people who in some ways would like to do what I'm doing and aren't. So in a vicarious way by supporting me, they're, they're doing what they'd like to do. Do you imagine that the ideas that you're putting out would be used by economists and engineers and people involved in financial systems to enact reform? That's a, that's why I'm doing it. 
Um, but you can't reform what you don't understand. So the very first point is getting the understanding right. And that's why I've built Minsky as a software package to make it possible to understand monetary dynamics and so on. And that's why I'm working on economic theory and saying, unless we have a theory which actually describes the world in which we live, then our reforms are going to be counterproductive and destructive. And that's what I think economic theory has done. So it's so-called reforms have made capitalism work less well. Um, but because we're caught up in the maelstrom, we can't actually go back and reverse those changes. So we end up accepting them as part of reality when they were actually forced on us by economic theory. Things like privatising education, privatising transportation, rail systems and so on. That was all following neoclassical ideology. And we got used to it. We think it's normal, but it wasn't normal. We, these were actually public assets at one stage. So I do want to reform both how we think about the economy and how we manage it. And I think the, the, the real problem is we're managing it using a theory which is factually and logically false. And therefore, what they call reforms end up being deforms. I mean, the alternative extreme socialism played out for the West in the form of the Soviet Union too, which I think mm. was such an utter disaster that it has scarred the collective consciousness mm. Mm. of the West. And maybe there's a pendulum that's swinging there mm. to some extent. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a, it's a yin-yang thing. There are some things which the public that does much better than private and vice versa. Mm. And what we've had is ideologies pushing us to one extreme or the other. Mm. And I love the expression about it, Buddha, uh, you know, describing, uh, developing his idea of the yin and yang approach to a philosophy uh, by overhearing a, an instructor teaching a young lyre player in a, in a boat going past how to play the lyre and saying, no, if it's too tight, if it's too loose, you won't get a note. And if it's too tight, the note will be wrong. And he said, it's a balance. Okay. So Western civilization ends up with this obsession about one extreme or the other, and really what you've got is a yin-yang situation. You need both of them. Mm, and I uh, and I'd just like us to, to realize that and have a, a balanced position about public versus private, which we've never done and we've, I think we'll never achieve it. How would you break things down public versus private? A large part of it is how long does the uh, – how, how essential – is the item you're looking at, okay? How important is cost versus reliability? And how long do the resources, did the assets last that are involved? If you have assets which last uh, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, like dams, power lines, uh, things of that nature, then you want the public service taking care of them because you'll have a long-term perspective. You, your, your responsibility is to make sure it's there when you retire. Uh, the private sector, you want a three-month return? Yeah. You know, bring out a new form of, of, of chocolate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, then that's that's where the private sector will excel because you want that fast return. So it's partly durability. It's partly how essential it is. Now, can you do without electricity for a day? Can you have intermittent electricity supplies? No, not for a functioning society. That's the sort of thing where you would want public provision. Uh, but it doesn't have to be public ownership. At the week. It could be public ownership but not public provision. Like, for example, I had a very funny event which sort of combined socialism and capitalism. Uh, the president of the Communist Party of South Korea visited me in Australia because I'm a, big, a very renowned writer on Marx. And uh, we didn't exactly hit it off, putting it mildly. But anyway, when he arrived, this is a socialist, okay, Communist Party member in South Korea. 
he went around his apartment with a with an Ethernet cable, trying to find where to plug the Ethernet cable in. I said, there is none. He said, well, how do you get internet here? Oh, we use dial-up modems. That's so primitive, he said. Why do you have that? He said, in South Korea, the government told all the companies they had to make sure every house had a, a T100 connection, basically Ethernet connection. And the government didn't care how they did it. It was just a condition to operate as a telecommunications company. You had to be part of a consortium to make sure every house in South Korea had a T1, T100 connection. I think it's called T1, T100. I've forgotten the actual digit. So that's why we have things like Samsung and Hyundai, et cetera, et cetera, and such technology coming out of Korea. The government provided the foundation. Uh, whereas countries that are obsessed about privatizing that You've had, you know, ineffective. You, you could never get the the scale, the critical scale of operation for the private sector because the public sector wasn't the provider of this fundamental infrastructure. Do so you there are many, many areas where I'd, I'd say the government should provide, and that's where durability and reliability are essential. Mm. Do you? Where do you draw the line when it comes to something like internet infrastructure, like online, like info sources and? social media platforms you mean and, like software yeah do you view these as as oh, potentially soft, public software's, pro, soft, software's private hardware like in, in in case of uh you know if you wanted to have the best the best hardware uh backbone for internet you want to have optical fiber to every every house but I, wouldn't you, you want to also have the best search engine possible that was unbiased and you know that when you want to have that's, the that's, best that's public that's a good point. Yeah, so the, the, that there's some elements like a search engine. You would not want that being biased to particular commercial interests. And it is right parts. now, right? Yeah, it yeah. is definitely. So that's a good example where in software you'd like that to be publicly provided um, to to stop uh, you know being monopoly deals being done and you're being screwed without knowing it's happening. So yeah, search engines are a good example of thing which should be a public a public amenity. But at the same time, the the development of those engines came out of the private sector. But the internet itself, of course, was government creation. DARPA was the where the internet was born. So it, 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 there's no simple, easy solution all the way down. But you have to make decisions like that, you know, to, to make a, a sensible choice, not ideology. Right, and you at that point run it into the conundrum of hoping to God that your government isn't corrupt and that it's capable of making those objective resources too. That they're not, you know playing tricks on you as you go especially when it comes to information distribution this is something you know some of the founding fathers of our country were very clear about how they'd much rather have a free press than you know anything any other aspect of freedom because the ability for a democracy to make sense of what's happening is at the heart of its ability to function and make good decisions mm. so I, I don't know I, I just i'm not sure what the solution I mean, to that is it's very yeah it's scary I mean, in like I was involved in the, in the um, media business for a long time before I became an academic. And when I saw the internet developing, I thought, well, the, the newspapers have to work out a micropayment system. Mm. Otherwise, they'll fail. And they didn't, and they have. And so the quality of media is far lower now than it was, say, 40, 50 years ago when classified ads gave them the, you know, the rivers of cash, as they used to say, that enabled them to have a large staff of journalists and a good research team and so on now they haven't got it anymore and they're struggling and it's terrible on that front um so yeah but you you've got you know moguls like mike murdoch dominating the press and you get an incredibly distorted system coming out of it so you need some places you need both private and public and mm -hmm. 
and and that's I think the media is a good example. You'd like to have a public broadcaster uh, that can at least stop the outrageous claims of the private sector when you get you know, the Murdoch into the world, dominating what people think is happening in the real world. Well, that's what's strange. Those private sector media outlets seem to be heavily influenced by partisan politics at the end of the day. It's almost like, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that they've become less attractive to most people. That's why these alternative media sites are where people are getting their news, you know, from even if it's from Substack or something like that, people are interested in unburdening themselves from that clearly captured superstructure. And yet none of them want to turn to the government. I don't think that there's anybody who's tired of public, of of privately held media and believes that the answer is to have the government put out the media, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, to, to me, the um, you know, the, the, there are decent public broadcasts, like the Australian Broadcasting Commission is a decent broad public broadcaster. The BBC was. Uh, it's, it's actually become rather dominated by MI5, which is a long story. That was exposed by the BBC, funnily enough. Um, and the same is true with our CNN or, <laughs> you know, these places are, have also, there's been disclosures about... The CIA operation, I think, in the 60s was yeah. called Project Mockingbird. Mockingbird, that's it, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a widespread... And, and the independent media, they're like I'm part of the whole scene of, you know, things like Substack and Patreon and so on too. Um so um, I'd be more worried about education than I'm about at the newspaper end of the world, frankly, about the quality of education and uh, exclusion that comes out of that. Uh, well, maybe we can so, learn something, though, from the media, because this seems like the solution isn't government control of it. The solution is actually a reprivatization in a different way than these big corporate superstructures. It's like something nobody could have imagined, perhaps. Um, and, and I wonder, like the... You've also got, I know, the cooperatives existing, not-for-profit cooperatives for news broadcasts and so on. So other forms like that. Yeah, yeah I wonder that's... That, oh, go ahead. I just wonder if that'll play out in terms of the educational systems as well. The not-for-profit model is a really, really interesting one, right? Because it inherently is an anti-shareholder system. Mm. And so much of our problems can be traced back to shareholder obligations. You have to grow in order... Three-month reporting and so on, yeah. Right, exactly. And so as nonprofits proliferate, I wonder if that isn't going to be this quiet switch over to a different system. Because technically somebody who operates by themselves and is publishing a sub-stack and doing a Patreon, they're not necessarily a nonprofit, but they operate within the economy in a similar way because they're a private individual that's never going to have shareholders. And that's yeah, not the yeah. goal, right? You as Steve Keen never want to grow to the point where you do a public offering of Steve Keen where, you know, people buy bits of you or something. Or do you? Is that, <laughs> <laughs> is that a goal? Well, actually, I, my, my Ravel software, the intention of that to sell, sell Ravel one way or the other and get myself out of uh, you know, working on a smell of an oily rag and be able to pull together the 40 or so people I want to work with to build the new economics, that's my... That's my intention. So I, that, that is my little piece of privatization, if you like. But that would be selling into an obviously commercial market of business intelligence. So I don't feel like I'm taking money out of baby's hands to, to try to do that. Yeah. Would you would you start uh, like a foundation, a think tank? What is the – so you, yeah. let's say that you sell Ravel enough. You know, you, you have an LLC. It sells Ravel. You make sufficient profits to be able to start something. You start a foundation? Yeah. I call it the Kane Institute. 
take advantage of my surname. And uh, there's about, like, in terms of research stuff I'd like to hire, there's about 30 people, all of whom I know personally, as you can imagine. I want to drag them and say, okay, stop what you're doing, which is working for a university or, you know, and, and getting five hours a week where you do what you want to do. Uh, drop all that stuff, come work for me, do what you want to do for 40 hours a week or 60, and we'll try to build the alternative economics together. That's what I'd like to do. And you would privately fund that with the capital from your business essentially that's the that's the idea so i see i see so it's it is an alternative model i guess to having a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the thing with having a nonprofit is that there's all these well at least in terms of what we do because we imagine also being able to give grants for research projects as well eventually down the road you know this is like 10 20 year plan I don't know, mm. but we, we, there's a lot of scientific projects that don't fit under the scope of different institutional programs. Mm. And so we're not the only ones who are interested in this. There's a lot of people who want to give money and a lot of researchers who want to do work. And there is some important project in putting those people together. And uh, it seems like the scope of that would be beyond being able to fund it by a single private institution. You want to be able to agglomerate all of these uh, donors with people you know, there's this money supply just waiting to be tapped. Um, and so there's different projects there, perhaps. With the, with, so a lot of people have been talking about the, the period of zero interest rates on loans as being really conducive to business and innovation and the creation of money. And if interest rates are going forward going to be higher do you think that there, that means that there's less money that's going to be available and that it's going to have an effect of clamping down on the economy in the long run oh i think a lot of the money that's been created in the last 30 or 40 years has been financing speculation rather than innovation um so i'm like you know quite critical of um of the growth in private debt which led to that decline in interest rates and most of that private are going into housings by price speculation and share price speculation, not actually funding entrepreneurs. So um, I'm not, the, the, low, the low interest rates were a product of high levels of private debt. And funnily enough, the, the government, the central banks weren't aware that was why it was happening because they were recording private debt. According to their model, changes in the level of private debt have no effect on the economy. Mathematically wrong, but that's what they believe. Um, so the low interest rates were a product of letting private debt get out of hand. It wasn't that, um, you know, we, we should have had low interest rates all the time. Um, but I, my father was a bank manager, as it happens, back in the 1950s. And Dad it told me, introduced me the old expression that banking should be a 3-6-3 three, three business. Borrow at 3, lend at 6, and be on the golf course by 3 p.m. Okay. Uh, so what that means is the banks are the servants of the industrial sector, not the masters. But because the level of private debt's risen so much, and we've such a financialized world these days, the finance sector tells the government and tells the industrial sector what to do. And I think it's, we're worse off for it in both cases. So I'd rather see a lower level of private debt and and not higher interest rates than now, but the rates we have rather than the zero. To me, it's more important to get the level of debt down than to get the level of interest, the rate of interest down. And what immediate steps would you take if you were given complete command over this structure? I'd bring in a modern debt turbulent, which is uh, one of the things you'll find in my debunking, uh, my uh, manifesto book. 
So I'd give people money on the condition they pay their debt down. So you create government money, fiat money, use it to to cancel. Um, not you wouldn't you wouldn't be creating money; you'd be changing what money is backed by. So, like at the moment, the level of private debt in America is about one hundred and seventy percent of GDP. Your government debt's about it. Yeah. Okay. You don't know that, do you? This is the people think government debt's high. It's about in most countries, government debt's one half the scale of private debt. Okay. And this is this is the ignorance everybody has about this stuff. Of course, I know it. This is why I mean, I spat it off. But virtually every country in the world, there's two or three exceptions, but virtually every country in the world has far more private debt than government debt. Now, you wouldn't know it for all the obsessing about government debt levels, would you? But well, I'd so, use. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I want to. I, I have questions already. Go ahead. Okay. I'd use the government's capacity to create money to give people money on condition they pay their private debt down. You get a growth in government debt as a result of that, but a fall in private debt at the same time, pretty much one-for-one one swap. And then with less private debt, people would be less concerned about hanging on to money to be able to pay their debts. And what, what that actually does, that desire to hang on to money to pay your debts, doesn't create money. It slows down how fast money turns over and gives you a lower GDP. So we would actually have more economic activity out of the same amount of money if we reduce the level of private debt and that would stimulate the economy. Now, of course, at the same time, I'm absolutely concerned about climate change, and and I know we've got to go backwards. I mean, we, we need degrowth. But that's another reason to have less private debt, because if you have degrowth occurring, then people's financial commitments are getting bigger compared to their the amount of money being created, the amount of turnover in the economy. So with the private debt hangover, if we're forced to have to get into degrowth, which we will be one way or the other, either by decision or by the climate forcing it on us, then we're going to have a financial crisis caused by degrowth with the high levels of private debt. Uh, so if you create money at the government level, give it to people, and they pay their debts that they hold to the banks, don't the banks get wildly rich? And don't no, the people who... No, they go, you have a one-for-one one swap. So debt goes down, reserves go up in that process. And then you sell the bank's bonds that are equivalent to the increase in reserves. And the bonds earn an interest rate, uh, which is less than the interest rate they got from loans. But, of course, it's far safer than loans. So you also have to have the banks in on this. It's not enough yeah. to just give people the debt. You also have to get no. the banks to agree to buy the government bonds. Yeah. Okay. Now, it won't happen. I know there's absolutely no chance of this happening, but you asked me what I'd do if I had the power, and that's what I'd do. I mean, I, I, I think that... I, I believe It could in happen if awareness is raised about the benefits of acting in this way to the extent that everyone believed mm -hmm. it was the case. And a moral education, right? That's I, That sounds so stuck up. But I think that the ways that economics will work best is if people are preoccupied with doing the right thing and thinking in this more long-term way. And I don't think that that's impossible. It's unlikely. It's not how history has played out. No, definitely not how history but has played out. But we see regularly that there are economic theories that catch the imagination like modern monetary theory and we don't have too much time left because we actually have to go in a few minutes so maybe we i need to i need to close this somehow and so what i want to say is 
There is reason for optimism because theories do become popular and people do implement them on the level of governments when they think that it will work. And so if people believe that this could work, then I don't see a huge obstacle to it. The obstacle is that's convincing the, people the, that the, it'll work. The first, that's that's a huge obstacle in my experience, okay? Because I've been, like, I, I started warning about the financial crisis in 2000, late 2005 because I thought I'll only get listened to after the crisis if I warned beforehand. And I certainly have got, you know, more public exposure and more um, awareness out of that. But still, when they go on economic advice, they go and ask Ben Bernanke what to do. So you now the mainstream conventional way of thinking tends to dominate even after it's caused a crisis, which is what happened back in 2008. I would love to get you and Ben Bernanke in the same room and record that conversation. <laughs> I don't think he'd agree to it. I would. I, maybe I maybe we would. have to work stepwise up and progressively find larger and larger economists until we can oh. get that to happen. Because I think that... I mean, the fundamental crisis here is that usually for systems to be improved, there has to be a collapse of the first system. That's, That's true. usually the motivation to try something new in the first place. And we are endless optimists here, and we're always trying to imagine our way through crises without dealing with collapse, because collapse is often quite painful uh, in the short term. But the short term mm -hmm. can be years, so it could be generations. So, and that's what I think we're facing with climate change, yeah, which we haven't discussed, but that's my main interest now, and I think we're uh, we're going to have a hell of a collapse. So why don't we put a pin in it there, and then would you be okay coming back and and recording a conversation about yeah. collapse? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, that, that would be okay, really fun. all right. I, I want to say well, before I, you leave, I I really appreciate. Uh, what you've taught us today. I don't think I ever totally understood banking and money until today. And so I'm very <laughs> grateful for you explaining that. And uh, yeah, it's been really, really, really meaningful to me. So thank you. You're welcome. Okay. All right. We'll see you again. I hope to see you again soon. All right. All right.